everybody, Derek here from Red Shirts and Runabouts. Uh, we have our episode coming up, but I do want to point out that the audio is going to sound a little different and is not up to our normal quality. Uh, we had to use the Zoom recording of the audio rather than our individual tracks, so I apologize for any distortions or background noise we were not able to cut out because we had one track to work with, but we hope you enjoy the episode. Jeremy and I are going to be talking Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, as well as some Star Trek Discovery news out of WonderCon, including maybe some stuff about Giorgio and Section 31. Enjoy. Welcome to Red Shirts and Runabouts, your source for all things Star Trek here on the Heroes Podcast Network. I am your host, Jeremy Munkin, with uh, your other host, Derek Mayer. Hi, everybody. So this week we are talking about Star Trek, what is it, five or six? Five. Six. 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 The Undiscovered Country. Yes. Well, you guys did five last week. Uh, Yeah. It was it was bad. You want to you want to throw in your two cents about how great that drunk acting was around the campfire? Star Trek V: The Final Frontier is a bad movie, <laughs> but I would definitely go toast some marshmallows with Kirk, Spock, and Bones at Yellowstone Park. All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, in in very stark contrast to Star Trek V, Star Trek VI is a very good movie. It is widely considered to be one of the best Star Trek films, usually somewhere in the top three of most people's lists of the 13 existing films. So, you know. It's certainly my number one of the, uh, the original cast. It is, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Because this one felt like, felt like some old school Star Trek shit. They're like, they got a, there's the kind of overarching A story of the, the mystery of, of who shot the ship. And uh, then there's like the B and C story of kind of the character development piece. And then kind of the scenic planet to planet and intrigue of different alien races. It just like, it hits every, every juicy nugget of Star Trek goodness that, that is on offer from this IP yeah, I'm a huge fan of this one. I actually, this is my favorite of the original series cast as well. Um, it comes in at number two overall for me in Star Trek movies. So um, I guess that's that's a good thing for both of us. I think it probably surprises a lot of people that, you know, the Wrath of Khan isn't beating this one out. But I enjoy this one more overall. Yeah, we, I guess we can just start hitting it. Uh, well, did, did you want to cover some of the Discovery news from over the weekend? Uh, sure. I mean, if you want to front load that, I was thinking we could talk about that at the end. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then that, that's our teaser then. Later at the yeah. end of the episode, we'll talk about some of the breaking Star Trek Discovery news from WonderCon. And one of it is really cool, and I'm excited to talk about it, but let's save that for dessert. Okay. Fair that enough. Delicious chocolate frosty I just ate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the movie starts with Praxis friggin' exploding. Yes, and we get to see Sulu on the Excelsior with that lovely tea set that I really want to have. Yeah. <laughs> vibrates off and shatters on the floor. It's like, no, it was so nice. And, by the way, uh, the, the time frame and location of the 35th anniversary episode of Star Trek Voyager. Is Praxis? 
is that scene on the Excelsior. Wait, say that again. What is this about Voyager? So there is an episode of Voyager that was the mm-hmm. 35th anniversary episode of Star Trek. Okay. Um, they, they did a special anniversary episode. And in that episode, Janeway and Tuvok mind meld with each other because Tuvok is having issues. And it, the events that they go through in his mind take place during this part of the Undiscovered Country because Tuvok is on the Excelsior. Oh, so George Takei actually not comes, the same actor. He would have been much too young, right? No, same. I mean, well, so he he's not actually in the movie. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, that's what I was asking. It's no. more of a retcon, right? Um, but uh, but George Takei did come back for it. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. So Ooh. yeah, interesting episode. So I, I just like throwing that tidbit in for anybody who may not be super aware of Voyager that this this whole scene on the Excelsior pops up again in another yep. Star Trek. I, when I watched Voyager, I buzzed through it kind of, kind of uh, too fast to really sink in. So I do not recall that, but I'll have to take a, take another look now that I've seen this. Yep. Though I have seen this before. Like there were big chunks of it that I recall, but not like all of it. So apparently I, I watched this movie at some point with like no context and probably commercial breaks and limited attention. So it's nice to finally thread together all the pieces. Right, right. But so they, they, the moon explodes from overmining, which impacts the ozone layer of Kronos. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, it's not going to be good for Kronos from that standpoint. The big thing is that it is the main source of uh, energy, really, for the Klingon homeworld and the Klingon empire. So losing this puts them at a significant disadvantage moving forward as far as a power in the quadrant. So why does that never come up again? I mean, it, it kind of makes it seem as though what would become, I guess, the Kittimer Accords, which is this agreement at Camp Kittimer, but that's, that's later in the movie. But so are, are the Klingons from this point forward dependent on trade with other, other, species to for their very survival so that's kind of the premise of what happens in the undiscovered country is that they would never negotiate with the federation but now because of the destruction of praxis and the situation that puts the empire in they are forced to negotiate to basically get the resources they need from an economic perspective but, but does that ever come up again? I always feel like the Klingons just still are kind of this hostile race, like in, in Next Gen and in DS9. Um, I mean, part of the problem is there's a huge time gap, right? So when this movie happens, it's approximately 75 years or so before we see Klingons again in the next generation. So right. a lot of time you know, goes by and a lot of things change. And at that point, we're more or less buddy-buddy because we don't, butt heads a whole lot with the Klingons in TNG and DS9. Uh, more often than not, we're allies. True. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, that kind of shows the, the next time you see a Klingon after this movie, it's he's a Federation officer. So that kind of tells you what happened in that intervening 75 years. I mean, basically, yeah. But they, they did specifically say that the ozone layer was was hit so that like would make Kronos uninhabitable or like that was uh what's her name K- 
Kim Cattrall was was saying that it made the planet uninhabitable in 50 years? So, yeah, that part was always a little bit funky to me. It sounded more like they were just going to be out of their energy reserves in that time frame. Hmm. And if nothing was done, then they would begin to die. But then again, you didn't just watch it. So you might be forgetting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a minute. I was at WonderCon this weekend, so I was not able to watch the film. So you're going on memory. I'm going on like a lack of notes, but immediate recollection. But I have seen this movie a bunch of times, so I might be forgetting that one detail, but I do remember the movie quite well. That detail is extremely important to me. Just, just know that. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Um, so unlike the last movie, we do see, well, the last two movies, really, we see Kirk acknowledge that his son, David, recently died, uh, because he actually has a picture of him as opposed to the complete disregard for him the last couple movies. (laughs) Uh, yeah, at four and five, they kind of forget about him. That's, that's true. Poor, poor curly-headed boy. Well, it was a little shoehorned in to begin with, right? Like the whole idea that he just all of a sudden has this adult son that we've never heard of, I guess isn't out of the realm of possibility for Kirk given his career. But as we know in other film genres, the all of a sudden adult progeny trope never really works out that well. Yeah. Yeah, the like, here, meet your son. Oh, he's dead. No. (laughs) But feel really bad about it. Yeah. So that's kind of the uh, the undercurrent of the whole movie is is the explosion of Praxis, which is a big big moment in Klingon history, which kind of with the uh, information we get from Discovery about kind of how the Klingons were before all of this, uh, this is this is a huge huge turning point in in all things Klingon. It really is, because up until this point, you know, they're incredibly self-sufficient. They are this massive warlike empire that, you know, really, I mean, if you look at Discovery's timeline, at least, is just kicking the Federation's ass. Uh, the only people really keeping them in check are, are the Romulan Empire. And uh, this is the first time where they show themselves as being vulnerable. Right. And even then, they don't really want to show it. There's only a handful of people that really want to show that vulnerability. That's true. I mean, the, and and most of them uh, do not make it through the first half of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of people die pretty quickly in this movie. I think that's that's definitely true. Um, you know, uh, Chancellor Gorkon, for example, uh, comes to mind. Which is yeah. just super sad. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting. They so they have this like state dinner aboard the Enterprise, and it's kind of tense, but also like kind of like straightforward in in the tension, uh, which was interesting to see everyone just kind of being like, "We don't trust you," and they're like, "That's eh, fair. We don't we don't expect to be trusted." Um, but then, uh, yeah, things things take a turn after. Some some someone aboard the Enterprise shoots some torpedoes at uh, what is the name of? Or I guess it's just a Klingon battle cruiser. It doesn't have a name. It's the yeah the Chancellor's ship. Um, well, I don't I don't want to skip over the dinner too quickly because it's one of my favorite scenes. Because first off, I like the directness, the idea that 
unlike the Romulans, who are very sneaky and covert, the Klingons are very direct. They are in your face, and they don't like you, and they'll let you know that, that they don't like you. Um, but what I love most about this scene is they're all basically quoting Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, through the whole movie. <laughs> but this scene specifically, you know, and they're joking about how, you know, it should be spoken in the, in the original Klingon. And yeah. I, I love that kind of idea. I guess it kind of plays on the the idea that Shakespeare was not one person. Shakespeare was a group of people writing together and maybe other worlds had similar things happen. So Shakespeare is not human. Is that what you think the implication is, is that Shakespeare was in, in the culture of, of Klingon society at the same time as it was in human society? I don't, I'm not really taking it seriously. I don't think that that's what the movie was trying to do, but I like the idea that for everybody, Shakespeare is theirs, right? So, you know, they're quoting Shakespeare in Klingon and what they're calling in the original Klingon, right? So for them, that's the original translation. See, I thought that that was like him basically trying to appropriate human culture as kind of like a dig on Kirk to say like, Haha, this is ours. Um, I, I see. I didn't take it that way. I took like with with Christopher Plummer's Chang. I really took General Chang as this character who is highly educated, highly sophisticated, but from an era an era long gone, the same era that Kirk is from. Right. That's what we're supposed to basically learn in this movie is that cowboy cowboy diplomacy is over now, and the people from that era, Kirk Chang the rest of the Enterprise crew, they are now relics who no longer fit in with the time. Which is a brilliant point to make about really, I mean, it's, it's true now, it was true then. Um, But yeah, that, that moment when, when they have their kind of hostile ending of the dinner and Gorkon just goes straight up to Kirk and puts his hand on his shoulder and says like, our generation is going to have a very hard time living in this world. Because it's just like, we were we were enemies, and now we have to pretend to be friends. And it's like, yeah, I mean, any, I mean, you know, my grandfather, I'm sure, felt that way about the the Axis powers of the world to just like be able to, in a few decades, turn around and go, all right, I gotta I gotta act like you're not my mortal enemy. You're not the people that I was training to kill a few decades ago. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a great point. Because it's much easier for the next generation, not to, not, no, no pun intended really, but that next group that comes up through, you know, the ranks, they don't remember those wars. They don't remember those battles firsthand. And so for them, it's a completely different structure. Well, and that concept of like literally quote unquote, the next generation, this was made in 91, which is two years after next gen has been on TV. Uh, so- four years, four Oh, was that, was 88? 87. 87. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's like handing the torch down to the, the little kids show that's, that's trying to make their way. I mean, basically, um, that was kind of the idea to, to just, to make that distinction of what you're watching on the big screen is the old way. And the new way is what's on the small screen, right? Picard is the future of the Federation. Kirk is the past. And you really see that in kind of the differences in their approaches towards diplomacy, where Kirk is just like an animal. I mean, he's he's barely holding back his hatred for these people, and you would never see that. I mean, unless like right after 
uh, Locutus of Borg, Picard was like expected to have dinner with Borgs, but otherwise, like you could spit in Picard's face and he'd be like, all right, well, let's keep talking. Well, right. And I think that was one of the points that they, you know, not to go off on a tangent, tried to do with Picard in First Contact is to show his hatred for the Borg, right? It's, you know, it, it's, um, they're his white whale because he's Moby Dick, right? Um, and for Kirk, it's the Klingons because they've, sure, they killed his son. And I don't want to necessarily minimize that, but Kirk has always hated the Klingons. Yeah. From the first times that you see them back in the 60s, right? He's always hated the Klingons. And he says that. I never, I, I, I've never trusted Klingons and I never will. <coughs> and that's, yeah, it's partly because of the, the death of his son. But I think he uses that mainly as an excuse to continue that hatred. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was interesting seeing those moments where he's he's recording his logs and he's just like, and he's really putting it out there. It's like you you wouldn't normally be filtered in your logs, but you'd probably be filtered more than he is. He just seems kind of like a grumpy old man. <laughs> and he kind of is, though. Yeah. At this particular point in his career, he is the grumpy old man. And that's just kind of how we're supposed to look at it. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the the underlying kind of narrative of this movie is I'm too old for this shit. It's like that's kind of everybody's. It's like, ugh, let's just let's just do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another interesting moment. I mean, taking a step back even further, and we're just going further and further back. Uh, they didn't like Kirk didn't sign up for this. Uh, uh, I keep wanting to say Nimoy. Spock signed them up for this in in kind of a kind of a dick move on Spock's part. Who? Yeah, that. He vouched for him, right? right. That's, that's the line. Um, it is interesting because you would think that at this particular point in their friendship, they should know each other well enough. And he, the Spock that we have now is a very different Spock than we had in uh, The Voyage Home and a very different Spock than the one that we had in The Wrath of Khan or the motion picture. So he's grown and changed quite a bit as a character and yet still did not understand Kirk's reaction is what we're supposed to believe. Yeah. But I actually don't think that's the case. And it was interesting to see that they were apparently like out of contact enough that when they gather the old enterprise crew for that meeting uh, and Spock shows up being introduced as like head of special ops or infosec or whatever he's supposed to be, that, that they're all kind of shocked to see him. And that's, I mean, I'm, I was assuming as a, as a viewer that that was the first time they'd been in contact in a little while because he definitely seemed surprised. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it really comes back to Spock thought that it had to be Kirk, that if Kirk can bring the Klingons to the table, then anybody could. Right, which feels illogical, I guess, from like looking at it a Vulcan standpoint. It's like, why would you, why would you set that level of difficulty for yourself? If why not use an actual diplomat? I mean, is it is it that Spock trusts Kirk more to do this, or it's that he wants to prove a point by using Kirk in this way? Um, 
I don't know that he necessarily wants to prove a point as much as I think he sees the importance of it being from Kirk that this all happens. The idea that Kirk will be the spark that begins this new era of peace with the Klingons when he's the one whose son was murdered. Yeah. Right. I think that's the idea. Um, because it kind of goes hand in hand with the, the, um, yeah, their generation will be the hardest ones to live through that, right? Gorkhan's not that different from Kirk. These people, you know, Gorkhan and Kirk came from the same background. They were in these battles and they fought these wars and things of that nature. Gorkhan knows that this is difficult too. And he knows that if he and Kirk can work through this, if they can bring this piece forward, it'll be that much easier for the future. That's true. I think that's the point that Spock is really trying to make. And I think Gorkhan agrees with it. Okay. So, um, but anyway, let's, let's kind of go back. So, right. So they, the, they have the dinner, they all go away. They're joking about having too much Romulan ale and the gach that they ate and, and all that lovely stuff. And then of course the enterprise fires a torpedo at the Klingon uh, the Klingon ship, the ambassador ship, for, uh, the chancellor ship, excuse me, and basically just fucks it up big time. Um, right, they get their, their neutron reading, and then they don't really know what's happening, and then they they see the torpedoes leave the ship, and then they're all just like, well, that wasn't us, what's happening? Yeah, it's a pretty crazy scene, and then we see a couple uh, a couple Starfleet officers assume assume Starfleet officers beam over to the ship in special gear and just start killing everybody and purple blood goes everywhere. Yeah, blasting like pinpoint holes straight through them, which you never see that like if you hit someone with deadly force with a phaser, they're usually either vaporized or just kind of charred and then they fall down. You never really see the beam like bore straight through them and leave holes on both sides. That was that was kind of a different look for Star Trek death. Well, and I think that's why the blood looks the way it does. Purple. Um, yeah. So they obviously did not want a rated R Star Trek. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of a big deal, of course. Um, and the original, I'm trying to look, I can't even remember what it, what it was rated. looks like it's just PG. So they were trying to avoid the PG 13 rating. Um, and so by making the blood purple, it didn't look real, and they could get away with a bunch of blood and people being shot because it didn't look realistic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. And so, and looking back on it, I'm, I'm now confused even thinking about it. The, the torpedoes, they didn't actually come from the Enterprise, right? Correct. Okay, because they kind of went back and forth. They were like, Either we shot these torpedoes and someone changed our logs or someone else shot the torpedoes and they were just next to us. And I was like, well, wait, wait, which, so it was, it was both. There was someone on the ship who could have changed the logs, the two assassins. But in addition to that, there was the cloaked, cloaked enemy. Well, it was a couple of different things, right? Because someone on board the Enterprise made it look like the Enterprise did fire torpedoes. Right. So they had to do a manual count, and it was the cloaked Klingon bird of prey that Chang is commanding that fired those torpedoes. So it was a joint effort. But Chang was on Gorkhan's ship when it got fired upon. 
Or was he? Oh, was he not? I thought they well, showed him. I mean, he's there, right? But is he not giving commands to this right. other number to pray? Yeah. Right. So, okay. So I have to ask at this point, which version of the movie did you watch? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Cause there's two cuts of this movie. What is different between them? So in the director's cut, it is made crystal fucking clear that the Federation and the Klingon empire were conspiring together for this assassination attempt. Uh, yeah. By the end of it. I mean, you you see the the guy that plays Cisco's dad, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, but um, but at the end, the, the Klingon, you know, the Klingon who Scotty like shoots out the window. Yeah. Okay. Did they take his mask off? Oh no. Oh, okay. They had so, a Scooby Doo ending in the director's cut. They do. <laughs> they do, and it's uh, it's uh, what's his name who plays Odo. Um, oh, Rene Aubergeonois. Thank you. I never get it right, and I, I don't want to butcher it. Um, I don't know but, if that's the actual. But yeah, he's he has a small role um, in this film as one of the Starfleet guys, and yeah. Wait, so why would a Starfleet guy dress up as a Klingon when there's all kinds of Klingons doing shit? That doesn't make any sense. So here, here's here's how that works, and I, we're kind of jumping around because I just needed to know which version you saw. Uh, so the idea here is that the Klingons and the Federation, there are people from the old guard, right, Kirk's old guard, who do not want peace. They want right. the war. That's who they are. And because of that, they have to set this up to look a specific way. They can't have Federation officers assassinating other Federation officers, Right, but weren't there Klingons also in on the plan to start the war? Yes, absolutely. But Renee's character, who's Colonel West, yeah, Colonel West, um, he's actually un- uncredited since he's not really in the right. uh, the actual cut. cut. Um, the Christian Slater was for some reason. I was like, what is the robot doing here? <laughs> Uh, but the Federation's in on this with the Klingons, and so they could get somebody in position in Klingon garb to assassinate the president of the Federation. And then it would look like the Klingons assassinated the president of the Federation, and now there's all-out war again. But if they're conspiring, couldn't they just get a Klingon to do that? It would be harder to get a Klingon on that planet and positioned with a weapon in the right location. I suppose. Right? This way they can bypass all of that because he's like a top, you know, Starfleet officer. Um, It's part of what... um, Lieutenant uh, 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 Valeris is saying during the the really awkward and inappropriate mind meld on the bridge. Uh, oh yeah, that was that was that, shocking. Yeah, uh, but that's part of it. She explains the plan uh, and all of that stuff. Um, but that's that's the gist of the plan. It's convoluted, but all right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the thing. If if they really wanted this to happen, I feel like there were fewer steps that could have been taken to ignite war instead of this whole like who done it that they kind of set themselves up to to be in the middle of. I don't know. It it, it felt like I mean, Kirk himself was just like, "Well, let him die." Like, you know, if someone had just shot Spock like early on in the process, I feel like there just would have been war anyway because he was the only one really fighting for peace. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It's like we either shoot Spock, an old man who's kind of all over the place, 
before we do this like elaborate, like three piece handshake, like every race in the universe is involved, but only one guy from each planet. It's like super, super complicated. So part of it falls apart a little bit. Um, Did you know, do you know the origin of Kim Cattrall's character, Lieutenant Valeris? No. Okay. So this is where things start to unravel a bit and why the script ended up being kind of complicated. Originally, Lieutenant Valeris was supposed to be Savick. Which was the, yeah, okay. So that was uh, the, the, the Vulcan character who had already been recast once by Robin Curtis from Kirstie Alley in Star Trek 2 and 3. Okay? So when neither of the original two actors were going to return for this movie and they had to cast a third actor, in this case Kim Cattrall, they thought it was going to be too complicated to keep that as the same character at this point. Okay? Yeah. The original plan was that Savick was going to turn out to be a Romulan spy. Oh, huh. So the idea was you had this character who was going to be in Star Trek 2, 3, a little bit of 4, and then 6. And she was, I guess, supposed to be in 5 in some way originally. Um, See, that would have made more sense that it was a Romulan pretending to be a Vulcan, especially when she straight up lies to their face and is, like, doing the whole mind meld fight thing. Yeah, I kind of wish she was Romulan. That would make more sense. Right. So, of course, that became really convoluted and incredibly complicated, and they decided to drop that to make it less convoluted, but they were stuck with some of these different pieces, like the, the conspiracy to keep the wars going and to stop the peace and all of that, and the pieces didn't quite perfectly fall into place. I love the thought that in, in the director's cut or whatever, it's, it's Odo taking a shot under command from Cisco's dad after <laughs> after the legal battle with Worf. It's just like, man, it's like the whole cast of DS9 is just like hanging out. It is super weird, right? Because, yeah, Worf, we didn't even get to that yet. Yeah, Worf is in this movie. Yeah, as his own grandfather. <laughs> so that's, that's not Moog then. That's like father of Moog? Right, yeah. Um, let's see, what is he actually credited as? That would be the question, I forget. I think Colonel he, Worf. Yeah. Well, so, okay, according to IMDb, he's just Klingon defense attorney. <laughs> 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 Which isn't very helpful, I guess. We'll never get this past the Klingon defense attorney. We need to talk to the Klingon police chief. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of the gist of the whole film. So the idea here is that they're trying to kill off the leadership that wants peace on the Klingon side while framing Kirk and getting him out of the way to make the Klingons happy. It's kind of like – it's kind of how, how the two sides worked it out. It was we get to keep the war, but we get Kirk because we don't like him. But so, so Commander what's it? Uh, com- yeah, General Chang and uh, Gorkhan's daughter are both in on it from from the get go. But they're... no, 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 no. Uh, the Chancellor's daughter is not in on it. She's not in on it. She is not in on it. But Chang, so it's Chang, that unnamed Romulan guy who's just kind of looks shifty but never says anything. Uh, Kim Cattrall from Sex in the City, 
and uh, Cisco's dad are like the core of this plan. Yeah, kind of. So what is General Chang? He just wants to kill Kirk or shame Kirk. Like he doesn't care that his race is going to be wiped out. I don't think he cares about any of that. He wants to defeat Kirk and he doesn't want peace with the Federation because he thinks that will make the Klingon empire weak. And so from his perspective, he's trying to keep Klingon honor alive. Yeah, I guess. I mean, again, that just seems like the beginning and end of his motivation could have just been blowing the shit out of the Enterprise while cloaked. Um, But that's a little bit different, though, because then his own government would be after him. True. Right, because the idea here is that the Klingon government at the moment is going for peace. They need it from an economic perspective, from a political perspective. So if it is blatant that a Klingon ship destroyed another Klingon ship with the Chancellor aboard and the Enterprise, then everybody would just be hunting him down. Right. I mean, it would, it would be like the Klingons in the fifth movie that they just like, we're sorry, our government made us apologize for being mean. I mean, kind of. <laughs> so, yeah. So where were we in the plot? The the. So Kirk and, I guess at this point, Kirk and Bones get arrested. Right, because they, they transport aboard the Klingon ship to try and provide medical aid or just any kind of aid to the ship that, that believes they've just been torpedoed by them a few times. Uh, but they are just slightly behind the two Magneto boot uh, Starfleet assassins that uh, make their way aboard the ship. Right. And so the Chancellor dies right there with Kirk. They're, they have their last words together. And it's all twisted, of course, to get Kirk out of the way. That's kind of the whole idea is to get Kirk out of the way. Also, I, I love, so did you see the thing on Twitter the past couple days with Rick Santorum saying the uh, Parkland kids should learn CPR and everybody giving a hard time because CPR doesn't work on gunshot wounds? Yes. I feel like that's exactly what someone should have told Bones. Yeah, it gets, I mean, he, I think he's desperate, right? He's, he's right. desperate he's to save to do anything. He can't have the Chancellor die in his arms. So anything he could possibly do is, is what, you know, I don't know his anatomy. This guy's got two dicks. Yeah, that part was left out of this particular <laughs> film, I think. If I that wasn't in the director's cut? Not that I recall, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Still the best best thing to come out of Discovery, the entire thing, was two dick Klingons. <laughs> I mean, if that was your favorite thing in all of Discovery, you know, hey, you know, whatever. Whatever also, works for also you. retractable trill tattoos. That's pretty cool. But we'll talk about that later. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so they go to Rotopente, which is, um, you know, the, the Klingon prison planet, which is essentially an ice world where you'll mine uh, dilithium, I think is, is what they were mining, until you die, essentially. It wasn't dilithium. It was something else. Well, I remember. Else. Yeah. Okay. But uh, it looked exactly like the prison world from, uh, I think, not Pitch Black, but the sequel, like Chronicles of Riddick. Okay. Instead of hot, it's cold. <laughs> right. I think that's fair. I think yeah. that's fair. 
But uh, I mean, it's it's basically what they did to Kirk in uh, is that the first Star Trek two thousand nine, where they just abandoned him on an ice planet. That's where he runs into uh, Scotty the first time. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. If if they could go back, they probably would have uh, had Scotty say something like, "Oh, we've done this. <laughs> He'll be fine." Oh no, but, it is dilithium. You're right. Oh okay. I thought it was, but, you know, hey, it's all good. No, no, you're right. It is also the name of the penal colony that Captain Nemo and his crew escaped from and avenged in 2000, or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, okay. This is a very literary movie. A lot of references, a lot of quotes. Yeah, I didn't know that part. Good old internet. So, yeah, so they uh, meet a shapeshifter. Which is, you know, that's cool. Just random shapeshifter that is supposed to be a legendary, like, like Kirk thinks that her entire race is a myth, but that they're real. It just, it, it, that, that specific felt like very, like, out of left field. What? That, that, wait, say that again? So, uh, Marcia, uh, the lady that, that, like, tries to bang Kirk in prison. Yeah. Uh, that becomes a small girl and then a large monster and then uh, a woman again in, in a short period of time that helps them escape. Uh, there's that uh, where they're, she pops the flare and then he's like just talking to her about who she is and why can she do shape changing? What's it? Um, he was just like, I thought your people were a myth. And then she's just casually like, no, we're not. And it's like, okay, it's like, that's a lot to drop just for no reason. <laughs> well, okay, so I guess they never really explain exactly what kind of shapeshifter she is. I assume she's not a founder. No, but she would have turned to goo. I mean, I guess maybe. But like the whole, the whole thing about her being a shape changer was so like shoehorned in just so that they could have the very like cliche don't shoot me shoot me kind of moment which was just like it's it's so slapstick but i was like all right if this is what you wanted to do with this movie that's fine <laughs> well uh, yeah it was a little silly to have kirk fighting kirk right but yeah. um i don't know how else i guess you're gonna have to explain you know how else she like, why was she there the whole time kind of thing? And how could they get out? I mean, there's there's probably a lot of ways that you could just have someone help them escape and then get caught escaping so that they can get their freedom. I think the only reason she was a shape changer was so that Kirk could fight himself, which had the funniest moment in the movie where Bones is just knocked on his ass because he's too cold to put up a fight and she just clocks him. Uh, and then the two of them are rolling in this, like, weird rolling fight that they both have to kind of put the effort into the roll to to roll that much and they just roll right over bones and it wakes him up and he's like hey it's just like just rolled rolled right over him yeah (laughs) bones bones kind of becomes this big punchline in the last couple of films right because it's not really any different in star trek five either he just kind of becomes this punchline well, yeah, I mean, everyone is kind of falling into their their cliched roles. So you have, like, Kirk getting, 
getting macked on by alien ladies where Bones even goes like, why does this always happen to you? Because <laughs> he's like in the next bed and just has to put a pillow over his head so he doesn't watch Kirk bone down. And then you have Kirk getting into a big, like, out of shape guy wrestling fight that <laughs> looks so absurd when it's like actually filmed in like cinemascope or whatever. It's just like, this it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole scene is pretty crazy. I guess like the idea was just they wanted to get Kirk out into the snow so they could kill him as he was trying to escape. Right. right? That's, that's the whole thing. So, so that's the, the thing. Like the, half the movie is really just the Klingons trying to kill Kirk. Yeah. In, in the most contrived non-Klingon way, it's like everything feels Romulan because everything is some kind of like four-part scam that's bound to fail because it's too complicated. It's like everything reeks of, of what would become the Romulan ethos. Mm-hmm. Well, the Romulans, yeah, they are usually convoluted, right? All of their stuff is just way crazy over the top, and that's why they have the Tal Shiar and all that, I suppose. Right. But, uh, yeah, so um, while they're heading to Rurapenthe, uh, as, as Tabur, uh Gorkon's daughter, um, kind of takes a role that probably Chang didn't want in that she actually did kind of uphold her father's thing and said, we don't want war with the Federation, we just want Kirk. Um, so that kind of keeps Kirk as this blocking point between between the federation and and war with klingon that's still still a factor so i think that's that's kind of why the klingons continue to try and just get rid of him yeah i mean i I think that's really the basis of the whole film and then it's kind of wrapped into this more political plot that is a little more vague in the theatrical cut than the director's cut it kind of just depends on how close you paid attention, I suppose. Mm. But, uh, yeah, and then we we head back to the ship, and there's, like, this big, really kind of, like, all-hands-on-deck investigation of the ship that uh, the the old guard Trek crew are, are kind of playing this scam on both the Klingons and the uh, Federation so that they can stay and investigate. So they're constantly like, oh, the work drives out. We got to fix it. And like everybody's taking their turn to to concoct some lie about how they have to stay there while the whole crew shakes down the entire ship uh, so that they could find the Magneto boots that ended up back on the ship. And it, it does have kind of that like sci-fi noir aspect where you're trying to chase down this this mystery. And then they like, find the guy whose locker the boots were in and then he didn't have human feet so he couldn't wear the boots. I love that scene so much by the way. It was I love that. It was funny. I, I really appreciate it because so often, you know, everybody appears to be humanoid, right? And so you just assume then that well, if their face looks human, then I guess their appendages are too. And right. <laughs> you see this dude's feet and they're totally crazy. You had like eight toes and they're all pointing in different directions. His hand is, is like his, his feet look like burnt cheese. It's just like very strange. And it's like, why wouldn't he just have special shoes that were for his people? <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe they don't need them. Maybe their, their feet are really tough or something. 
Yeah, maybe he's like Beast and he needs his, his feet to be untethered to use their full prowess. Interesting, interesting. But uh, they eventually tracked down the two assassins, which were two schmoes that were just on board and they were dead because they had been blasted to the temple, which was which another odd specific that they look at the bodies, they see the burn marks and they go like, oh, this was a phaser set to stun, but it was point blank. So it's like, not only did Valeris kill both of them, Kim Cattrall, but she put a phaser on stun and just like smashed it up against their temple and pulled the trigger. It's so brutal. It is pretty intense, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no question about it. It's pretty intense. What goes on there. Kim Cattrall. She's, she's a monster. She's a monster. (laughs) I mean, she is definitely painted as a bad guy in this particular, um, in this particular plot, right? But I mean, she's just one cog. You know, Chang obviously is the one who's killing his own his own people. She's more of a logistics person who knows stuff because they rewrote the character. Like, there's not a whole lot that she really does. She blows up that pot in the kitchen. That was a pretty good good bit. That's true. Yeah, she does that. And um, then, like, all of the senior staff come running in, like within a few seconds of each other going like, who shot a phaser? But I mean, that was just to show that you can't just fire a phaser on, on the enterprise without somebody finding out about it. Right. You'd have to take precautions. And so it's in, her character is a little inconsistent because it's hard to know, like what was she really trying to accomplish? Well, I also just love that. Like, the alarm goes off that a phaser went off in like the the kitchen and no one just goes like, Hey computer, who's in the kitchen right now? Or something like everybody runs to that. Like say that was someone like boarded the ship and was fighting people. None of the people that showed up to check what happened were armed. They were just like, (laughs) no, they had, they they were the uh, security guys with the extra armor and everything. Yeah. Well, they were first, but then you had like, uh, Chekhov and Scotty and I think it was one other because three all the senior staff just showed up out of breath unarmed to see what happened hmm. it's just that's dangerous yeah I guess it's a good it's a good point <laughs> it's a good point but uh, yeah I mean there and then there's another moment where they're they're trying to get away with staying in the area to uh, to well this is after they figure all that out, they go back to Rurapenth to rescue uh, Kirk and Bones. Um, and they have that ridiculous scene where they have 17,000 Klingon language manuals on every surface of the bridge. And they're, they're trying to find like the, the two specific phrases to uh, lie to the Klingons. And yeah. which is like, we've, we've seen them speaking with Klingons. It's like the universal translator is supposed to make their speech sound as Klingons to Klingons, right? It's a weird scene because a couple of things. First off, it it basically makes it sound like the universal translator must be mechanical in nature when you listen to it and easy to pick up. And at the same time, you've basically now said that Uhura, who's been doing this job for 30, 35 years, does not know how to speak on which we learn in star trek 2009 that that's the her best thing 
And sure, I mean, that's a different version of her and yeah. all of that, right? But, like, you would still think that after 30 years, she would be fairly fluent in the language of the Federation's, like, biggest enemy that they run into, like, all the time. Right, and why would there be a bunch of physical printed paper books and not a digital database if that was the information (laughs) on language wouldn't that be one pad that you're just looking it up not like 30 books like you're in a law library it was like a bunch of phone books yeah yeah it really that did not work no it was it was like very bizarre shoehorn slapstick yeah according to the trivia section of imdb michelle nichols objected to it oh really with good reason. Yeah, seriously, it's not it's not a very good scene. So I'm not I'm not surprised she had a problem with it. It I think it, it sets her character back a little bit. At the same time, it's just kind of being pretty ridiculous. Yeah, a few a few other fun fun pieces of trivia looking at this uh upon watching the rough cut, uh Gene Roddenberry express expressed displeasure with the film storyline and then died forty eight hours later. Oh, no. Yeah. That's uh, dark. Yeah, that is kind of dark. I knew he died relatively close to when this movie came out, so. Yeah, it was, it was, it was after first uh, screenings, but before the movie came out, which is why the, uh, it was dedicated to him. Gotcha. That makes sense. Makes sense. I never really thought about it. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's very... Very interesting, the decisions they made. I mean, clearly they they wanted to shoehorn some very specific moments. Like, And I can, I can see this from like a, a writer's room perspective where there was probably one note card that said like, Kirk fights himself and then like ice planets. And then there was one where it was just like a bunch of books and Klingon speech. And they're just like, all right, how do we back into these funny moments that we can throw them in the trailer or whatever? <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think there's more to it than that. It, it was Nicholas Meyer involved who also did The Wrath of Khan and, of course, has been a consultant on Discovery. So he's very good with Trek, even though it's not really his wheelhouse, which is interesting. Oh, speaking of uh, Khan, last Thursday I went to a show at the uh, – oh, no, what is what was his actor's name? Oh, Oh, uh, Ricardo Montalban. You went to the Montalban Theater? Yeah, I went to the Ricardo Montalban Theater, and they, there's an audio clip that plays before. And he's like, if, if anyone speaks in my theater, you will face the wrath of Khan. And it was very funny. That's fantastic. <laughs> Apparently they play that before every show there. I love it. I love it. That's great. But, but of course, you know, they saved the day. Um <laughs> one of the one of the big things with this movie is kind of interesting. This is also when the feud between Shatner and Takei had really heated up. So if you notice, they actually only share one scene together. Are they actually in the oh yeah, at the very end they're in the same physical space. But yeah, he was always on the Excelsior. Right. Yeah. So, you know. And I mean and then there's the big fight between both the Enterprise Excelsior and then the uh prototype vessel that's shooting everybody with uh Inviso bombs, mm-hmm. which again, if you're Valeris and you know that you're like going to get blown up by the prototype ship, that I mean, she's willing to sacrifice herself to kill the Klingons. It just doesn't seem like from her perspective, it's like that's not a noble death. It's not something worth killing yourself 
for is defeating the Klingons who were, could very well just die of starvation if left alone. Yeah. That's why it just, her character, I think in all the rewrites just didn't quite make a lot of sense. Yeah. But again, I think the the fun that I had with this movie weren't the plot intricacies because it was kind of just like campy and fun and goofy. It was it was just like it was just a goofy Star Trek movie, but it was a fun time. Well, it's got some big political stuff to talk about. It's a very Cold War. Um, it's trying to pre- preach peace to a generation that they know doesn't really want it because all they've known is war, um, and so it was still trying to do very Star Trek things. But yeah, I mean, it touches on racism there. There's like a a big undertone of just kind of racism as a thing. And they even go to it in the end where uh, Kirk says, well, everybody's human. And Spock's like, well, that's, that's offensive. And and Kirk just kind of smiles and walks away. I was like, damn, Kirk, that's not cool. (laughs) Yeah. See, one of the things in in Shrek that I, I think can be taken um, definitely in a negative way is that the term human is meant to be a condition rather than a species. Right. It's, it's like, you know, we, we call our planet earth, but dirt is also referred to as earth. So if you went to another planet and said, this is a handful of earth, you're, you're not talking about that earth. You're talking about earth as a concept. So it's like humanity doesn't necessarily mean homo sapiens. It means like sap, like just, uh, sentient humanoid life but but again it's humanoid so it is you know in our language but I guess you you would think the the Vulcans would say like Vulcanoid life and Klingons would say Klingonoid life or something to just mean like sentient bipedal carbon-based organisms but that's the thing it's really only humans that do it is part of the point I think yeah which is weird I mean but everything's also translated into English, so we don't know. It's like Vulcans might be saying Vulcanoid, but it would be translated to human because that's just our contextual version of that. I suppose. I still think that those words should translate differently. True. But, you know, the universal translator is a tricky thing. Klingons apparently have the magical ability to continue to speak in Klingon even when their speech is supposed to already be in Klingon. God, yes, that's true. There is a lot of that as well. Yeah. But uh, we should probably wrap up here with this review. Yep. So uh, review, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's, it's great. I, it's my second favorite Star Trek film. So there, there are enormous plot holes, but they do not get in the way of it just being a fun time. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Also, I, this, I think this movie might be where I learned for, for my entire Trek fandom. I thought like, I mean, I, I probably learned a few years ago that Kronos is the Klingon homeworld, but I think probably until those few years ago, I thought Kittimer was the Klingon homeworld because uh, all you ever heard from Klingons were things tied to the Kittimer Accords. So I just thought that that was like the Accords of the Klingon homeworld, but Kittimer is like not even in, in Vulcan's or, uh, Klingon space, is it? No, it's supposed to be in like a uh, neutral location. Yeah. Planet on the Klingon side of the border with the Romulan Star Empire. Okay, so it is It is in Klingon space. Is it? Okay. It's I thought space. it might be in the neutral zone, but I haven't looked at a map really <laughs> to, to know. 
Uh, also, the location of the Kittimer outpost, site of the Kittimer massacre, where 4,000 Klingon colonists were killed by Romulans. Hmm. Complicated. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's talk about some some knowledge drops you got over at WonderCon. Were you actually in those panels? No, I didn't get to go to the panels, but I've read well, up on all of them. I thought you were making your way to those panels so early. Was that not one of them? No, I actually ended up not getting to, to go to any any panels over the weekend. We did other things. So, oh. But, uh, yeah, there, there was a panel for Star Trek Discovery. A bunch of new information was dropped. Uh, season 2 begins production in April, which we already kind of knew. Uh, but it'll have 13 episodes. It'll focus um, not, more on more exploration and scientific things now that there's a ceasefire between the Klingons and the Federation. Um, Jonathan Frakes will be returning to direct at least one episode, which That's is cool. Awesome. So happy to hear that, of course. But the big news was a scene that was shown that is now available on the at Star Trek CBS Twitter account. Um, oh, good. That was a deleted scene from the finale of season one, which everyone is now taking to be canon for the show, uh, which, you know, maybe this will end up being a red herring. But uh, do you want to tell us about the scene? Uh, Why would that be non-canonical? Because it was cut. It was cut from the episode. So they could show it at WonderCon. Well, it's a a deleted scene, right, is is the thing. And so that's all that it is right now. So the scene scene starts with uh, Mirror Giorgio on Kronos. What was, do you remember the name of the city that they were in at the end? No, I don't remember. Well, it's the city that they were in in the finale where uh, it's kind of the um, city on top of a volcanic vent and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's basically her running some kind of business. I'm not sure some kind of CD. I thought she just took over for the Orions that she killed. Oh, so that was just that Orion bar slash strip club. That's what I took it to be, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, someone comes up to her uh, who appears to be a, uh, uh, not Dax. Dax was one of them. Crap, what are they called? Uh, oh, the Trill. Trill. Trill, yeah. yeah. Also, <laughs> the guy with the weird feet was named Dax, which is funny. Oh, yeah, there you go. I was like, wait, is that? Curzon? So I don't. So that guy is—he's a human who's using some type of like digital Mission Impossible face maker to uh, make it look like he's Trill. Right. Yes, I thought you meant the, the guy with the weird feet in the movie. Uh, yeah. The, um, she says she she recognizes that those aren't real Trill markings, and he like presses a button, and his his tattoos all disappear, and uh, he he pretty much says she's. Uh, you know, destined for greater things, and, and there are people that need her services, and her skills are being wasted uh, running this, this seedy, seedy bar, um, and he puts a, a little box down on the thing and, and turns his trail tattoos back on and walks away, uh, and as he's leaving, he says, uh, welcome to section 31, and she opens the box showing a black, glossy, uh, what do you call him, badge, Star Trek badge, com badge, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, and that was, it would have been such a good stinger for the finale. I just, it, I can only imagine that it, it has to be canonical because it's such a good, 
Because, I mean, she's she's still cast on the show. She's still alive in the world. There has to be a reason for her to be there. And what better reason than she's, like, the one of the earliest members of Section 31. I mean, we don't really know how long Section 31 existed. You know, That's like, true. I regretted uh, it as soon as I started saying it. <laughs> fair enough. I was like, I don't uh, know that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so she gets recruited by Nick Fury into the Avengers initiative. And uh, (laughs) that's, that was cut from the finale of season one. So it'll be interesting to see how they tie that into season two. And if we'll see an alternate version of that scene or, or how they'll handle that. Let's not forget. She could actually be in the guardian or in the Avengers because she is a member of the uh, Ravagers in guardians too. Oh yeah, she is. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. But But, uh, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's going to be like her jumping off point for uh, for how she shows up in season two. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I'll be curious to see how they handle um, you know that storyline in addition to everything else that's going on. Uh, they did allude to the uniforms that we will see on the USS Enterprise. Um, there's a quote, actually, um, if I can find that here that I thought was really telling. Um, as I'm stalling here, just a second. <laughs> oh, Lorca stuff. Uh, where was that? I already lost it. Oh, wait, here we go. Ah, so they were talking about the uniforms, right? And so Gresham Berg said, "Well, we are in the same timeline. This is the Prime Universe, and we are pretty close to when TOS happens." Then Aaron uh, Harbert said, well, we bump up against the Enterprise at the end of our season one finale, and we know what kind of uniforms they wear, so we'll leave it at that. Is this so, about Monster Maroon? Uh, well, no, this would be the original series. Like, this, oh. is pre, this is pre-original series around the time of the cage. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll just have to see. Yeah, I mean, will Spock, was he on the Enterprise when yes. Pike? yes. So we will likely actually see Spock. No. No. I don't think we will. I think they will do something so we do not see Spock. (laughs) He's just like, he's gone this week. Oh, my brother. Yeah, I just, I would not anticipate that we see Spock, personally. That's, that's my guess. Well, it's like, what else is Zachary Quinto doing? Get get your (laughs) ass out there. Yeah, I mean, I guess if they wanted to do that, that would be the best course of action. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, cool stuff, cool movie. Uh, I think that's that's probably all we got for this week, right? Yeah, that's it. And next week we're going to try and talk a little bit about Section 31 for people yeah. who do not know too much about it. We'll discuss uh, a bit of what it is and how it's played a role in Star Trek thus far. Well, and not just Section 31. I, I do want to talk about like the Tal Shiar and the Obsidian Order. Uh, probably uh, so not- just Star Trek secret agents? Yeah. Probably not so much the, uh, the the time police from Enterprise because that was such a boring, drawn out character. They're a little bit in Voyager too, actually. Are they? Well, they, they are the temporal prime directive. Yeah. Yeah. Were those were those the same guys that showed up and uh, had like the picture of Cisco as Gabriel Bell, and they're like, "We've been watching you, Cisco. Cut this shit out." Something like that. Just, or was that yeah. just Section Thirty One? Uh, I believe those were the, the temporal guys. Okay. It's been a little while, so. 
Yeah, we'll we'll be touching up on on some of our uh, secret agent knowledge before before next week. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So let's let's plug some stuff and uh, and wrap this up. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage.